0: This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant.
1: This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 15, recorded on September 19th, 2011. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Kripe, along with my co-host here, Jim Geller. Welcome, Jim. Hello. Thank you for being back. Happy to be here, Tim. Lionel Chow. Thanks, Lionel. Thanks a lot, Tim. Well, I'm really uh, excited about today's episode. And today we have a special guest who is an expert in the topic we're going to discuss, and that special guest is Catherine Wickenheiser Brokamp. Welcome, Catherine.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Yeah,
1: thanks for being here. Catherine is an associate professor of pathology and laboratory medicine and pulmonary biology here with us at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center and the University of Cincinnati. Today we're going to discuss something called Dicer 1 syndrome, which is a relatively newly defined cancer predisposition syndrome, and it's based on a really fascinating field of biology that involves microRNAs and the whole field of Biology of microRNAs really wasn't appreciated until the last decade or so, so it's something that evaded everyone's radar for for years and years and years and is a major player in terms of gene regulation, protein expression, and now, it turns out, also plays a role in cancer development. So that's the topic today. thought we'd start off, though, uh, talking to Catherine about her background and how she got into this area. So Catherine, I think from... Your CV, I glean that you grew up in in uh, Bismarck, North Dakota. Is that correct?
0: Actually, I grew up in Strasburg, North Dakota. Strasburg. But I went to college in Bismarck. Bismarck,
1: okay. And where'd you go from there? how you get your where'd you get your training in science and medicine?
0: So from North Dakota, I moved to Cincinnati, and I did my MD and PhD degree here in Cincinnati at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and the University of Cincinnati. I did my research under Jeff Witsett here, who is an expert in the field of lung development and transcriptional control of lung development. And while I was here, I also developed an interest in lung cancer. I finished my um, medical degree here, and then went on to the university or to Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, and did residency in pathology there. Under um, as a mentor, I had. Louis P. Daner, who we affectionately know as Pepper, and I also worked with Ashley Hill, who became interested in um, the, a disease entity called pleural pulmonary blastoma, or PPB. at that time when we were residents.
1: So those are two very famous names in this field, so it sounds like you were there at a uh, critical time for your career development.
0: Yes, Ashley and I um, became very interested because we both learned a lot from Pepper Daner, and he actually was the person who identified PPB as a distinct entity in the late 1980s. And he um, published the first paper describing this uh, rare pediatric lung tumor.
1: So it is a lung tumor that's not very common in in, in children or adults, right? Uh, But... And you're interested in studying lung cancer of all types, so correct, the kinds that show up in adults as well. So this is a little bit of a different flavor from a lot of the rest of your work. Um, and, and it's a little bit of a different flavor for those of us who take care of patients with cancer, too, because it is so rare. Uh, it's something that we do see, but in order to understand it internationally, uh, there
2: was the need for a registry. Um, Correct, Jim yeah, so um again, I think we it's it's important to pay recognition to Dr. Daner's work as well as that of John Priest in the time at Washington University in setting up a registry and uh, there's a lot of positives and negatives that have said from registries, but I will say this has been one productive registry uh, serving as proof in principle that uh, this is a a meaningful and useful pathway to learn more about clinical behavior of rare cancers but also about uh, biology and learning on insights. Since the uh beginning of the PPB registry, which is um uh designed initially as a PPB registry, and, and the terminology I think that has uh that has, is now being used is the PPB family tumor and dysplasia syndrome uh or Dyserwhelm syndrome. I think there's perhaps the basis to which to use. But it's now put out uh approximately thirty-two manuscripts and has defined an entity um and enlightened all of us to the reach of common biology and what it can cause as far it's not just BBBs, but, but within this syndrome, there are frequently other cancers or, in fact, non-malignant conditions that are included, uh, such as cystic nephroma of the kidney, uh, such as Sertoli Leydig cell tumor, um, such as multinodular goiter of the thyroid as being the more commonly associated uh, neoplastic lesions with this that have been associated with families that have germline uh, uh, DICER1 mutation. And I assume the knowledge of that came about because of the registry, and because it, it was being studied. It, it came directly from the registry and from the analysis of their data sets, extending to the multiple hundred numbers of uh, diagnosed PPP children, as well as maintaining a good uh, data set as far as the families, et cetera, looking beyond just the affected uh, proband, the child himself, but looking into the families and relatives of the families and seeing what was associated and what we have found is, uh, these other rare lesions seem to be associated with PPB in a statistically significant increased number, uh, erasing much doubt that these are associated entities. In or the same patients possible.
1: or in different patients within a family?
2: So there are many cases of PPB occurring, uh, conc- uh, in the same patient as, as, uh, having, I'm sorry, these patients having PPB as well as a PPB associated tumor, um, very commonly, uh, children and relatives of PPB will have associated uh, thyroid cysts. Uh, commonly, they will have associated cystic nephroma. Um, and as well as there's, there are case reports now of PPB plus Wilms tumor in the same patient. Um, so it, it, can, it can go both
1: ways. So it sounds similar to some other inherited predisposition syndromes like RB patients, retinoblastoma patients developing osteosarcoma or other tumors related to the same
2: genetic defect. Uh, there are certainly uh, similarities and there are differences. Um, one of the key differences is we've learned a lot from this registry. In fact, um, there's a lot, still a lot to be learned. What we have learned is that not everybody who has a genetic hit, so to speak, uh, of Dicer one will actually manifest disease, and that's a concept called genetic penetrance, where you have the quote defect or the the gene mutation uh, in one of one of your two genes. Uh, but you never develop any any neoplasia at all, and in fact that seems to be more common than not. So um, it, it creates additional challenges about how to counsel counsel families uh, uh, regarding what to do about uh, findings. It's not clear cut. It's not clear cut. Um, I will say that, though that the the registry itself again serving as as a sort of beacon of of what can be done even for very rare rare situations when we put our put ourselves together and collect information. Um, the the implications of what we've learned so far at the clinical level uh remain uh difficult to to sort through and that's that's the source of the next wave of dialogue amongst the oncologists and geneticists and pathologists in the field is well now that we can identify subgroups of children and families at risk for pbb family uh, related events um what do we do about it and uh again that that's where principles such as penetrance and uh, prevalence of the various uh, conditions associated come into play as well as whether the associated conditions can be treated or are they lethal Um, the ppb itself remains the most lethal uh, entity in this whole family syndrome uh, where it can be lethal causing death of children from cancer uh, when not picked up early uh, uh, in addition to surgery uh, chemotherapy is often indicated um, so early identification of PPPs in infancy and childhood seems to be a, a, a continued major focus in this group. Whether diagnosing some of the other conditions earlier um, is uh, is feasible through a through an imaging platform or not, uh, or or fruitful is is still debated. So one
1: of the reasons I picked this topic for our podcast today, we like to do timely topics. Uh, the reason is a number of manuscripts have recently come out. Uh, in the medical literature describing in more detail some of these families. But I guess before we get to those, I'm wondering if Catherine would be so kind as to explain a, a little bit about what is DICER-1 and what is the mutation, what's the biology behind what we're talking about here.
0: So DICER-1 is a critical enzyme in making the mature microRNAs. MicroRNAs, as um, Tim said before, are have become very important in the last decade or so because of their critical role in regulating protein expression. And this protein expression can be, is usually regulated at the post, or is regulated at the post-transcriptional level, which is one reason maybe it evaded us finding it earlier. Um, Dicer actually is one of the critical enzymes that takes the immature microRNA that's made in the nucleus and processes it to the mature microRNA which then binds messenger RNA and either leads to its degradation or blocks its um, translation into protein. So,
1: so the, the mRNA is formed as a hairpin, correct, in the nucleus, and then the dicer cleaves that uh, into a double strand, or is it the piece that separates the double
0: strands? It cleaves it into its final double-stranded form before it binds the okay. or binds the messenger RNAs, and that occurs in the cytoplasm.
1: Okay, just trying to make sure we got the, the molecular mechanism understood here.
0: Drosha is actually the enzyme that does the initial cleaving in the nucleus before it's transported into the cytoplasm. Dicer is its final processing into the mature form.
1: Now, isn't the microRNA a single strand, though?
0: Once it binds, the, once it goes on to the rice That's complex. when it's okay.
1: Great. So the other thing that should be noted in this
3: field, I mean, Tim, uh, you mentioned that it's about a 10-year-old field. Um, and, um, but I think the relationship of this field to cancer goes beyond what we're going to, the topic that we're going to talk about today, and we should just sort of note that, um, there have been, uh, numerous individual species of, uh, microRNAs that are now known to be well-associated with the development of cancer, either as oncogenes, which we now term oncomeres, um, as a sort of a short form to uh, associate the fact that these are, are uh, microRNAs and not standard, yeah, regular genes, And also tumor suppressor uh, mirrors or TS mirrors. So um, uh, it looks like these microRNAs can function um, not only as, um, or these microRNAs can function in the context of a cancer just like any other um, uh, gene that has been associated with cancer like oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes. And that's uh, really uh, mushroomed this field, I think.
2: It's a great point, C- Catherine. If I can ask you qu- ask, ask you a question, I I, I know that you were uh, one of the authors on the lead paper in 2009 in Science, where DISO one mutations were finally identified uh, in a subset of families with, with familial PPP. So, congratulations to that. That was a pivotal paper that connected the DICER1 gene to this entire uh, entire family uh, uh, family of cancers and related neoplastic conditions. And I'm curious. As we're learning about um, the role of DICER-1 in these cancers, a, a, a recent finding that's exemplified in two of the papers that we're going to be discussing today is that the the disruption of DICER-1 in all of the neoplasias that have been identified thus far is largely in one allele. There's one mutation. And the other allele uh, is not lost. To, it's not. It does not undergo what we call LOH, or loss of heterozygosity, or mutation. It actually... Uh, apparently functions well and secretes various amounts of, of DIRSO1 protein. So it's a situation of haploinsufficiency, which is um, not as common in the cancer world. Do you, do you have any insights as to what may be going on there? In fact, there's some suggestion that when, we, when the second allele is lost, it may actually have a protective effect on the development of cancer, at least in some of the preclinical models. Are there any theory? I know I'm asking a difficult question. I don't know if there's an answer to it. Are there any theories that you're aware of or...
0: And actually that's one of the main questions that we want to address when we're looking into the pathogenesis of PPB and DICER-related neoplasms. So one of the things that we we want to get at is what is the pathogenesis and what are the functions of DICER1 that lead to, that are lost, that are critical in leading to these um, DICER1-related neoplasms. And that has been an interesting um, point that we have noticed just recently in the field within the last couple of years. And we're not sure really why that is and what the functions of DICER-1 are that are um, that it's important that it's only haploinsufficient rather than totally lost. There is one paper that has been put out by um, Tyler Jack's um, group, by Kumar, who um, they have demonstrated that in the adult types of lung cancer that DICER1 actually does act in a haploinsufficient manner. Whether that also occurs in these tumors that arise in these children is currently unclear. Um, That actually is some of the aims of the studies of um, Ashley Hill Mm -hmm. in her R01 to look at more of the tumors in these patients and also some of our focuses of our studies in our animal model to see, in fact, if DICER is, the other allele of DICER is lost in just a specific subtype of cells, or if it truly is just haploinsufficiency that predisposes to the tumors. Those are yet unanswered questions, and I'd love to know the answer.
2: You know, there is a clinical, thank you, that's a great answer, there's a clinical uh, correlation to that, and maybe that relates to the the low penetrance uh, of, of the disease. And uh, the hypotheses that I've, I've heard is that we we would anticipate that multiple, if not one, many secondary events are necessary in the background of diceo hypo- one insufficiency for tumors to evolve, and perhaps that explains why it's a relatively low penetrant with, with a lot of uh, phenotypic heterogeneity. Is, is that possibly related?
0: That definitely is a possible hypothesis that could... Uh, be related, um, we know that in the initial studies that we've done in building a mouse model that um, our mouse model, if we just lose dicer in a specific cell type, that it mimics the very earliest stages of PPB or type 1 PPB, but we don't know if it's capable of progressing onto type 2 or type three, which are the more lethal forms of the disease we know by following individual patients in um, work that has been published out of the registry with Ashley Hill and um, Pepper Daner and John Priest all contributing, is that type type one can progress to type three if you, or that's the currently held um, belief because we've seen in individual patients that they presented with a type one or type two and then later presented with a type two or three. And also, um, they segregate into age categories, so type 1 is typically found in different age groups than type 2 or type 3. They're typically a little bit older.
1: What are the different types? Is that a histologic type?
0: or The different types are um, histologically and clinically distinct forms. So histologically, PPB is characterized by cysts and by expanded mesenchyme. And... In type 1 PPD, they're mainly cysts with a benign epithelial lining and no mesenchyme. And as you go to type 3, they lose the cysts and actually are overgrown by the mesenchyme and become a high-grade sarcoma.
1: So how does one clinically differentiate a type 1 cyst versus a benign cyst if there's really no mass on effect? Wait, do you know Lars? No, I mean that's that's the issue, and, and certainly um, some other benign cystic lung lesions in small children, like the C-CAMs or central uh, cystic adenomatoid malformations, uh, can be readily confused with type one PPBs. I think um, that distinction can in part be made histologically, um, uh, and but, but not all lung cysts are, are biopsied, so there is some potential for confusion. For those of you paying attention, we didn't introduce Lars at the beginning because he wasn't here, but it snuck in. So <laughs> welcome, Lars. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming. <laughs> Thanks for no problem. Um, Jim, did you want to touch on any of these papers and how they expanded our yeah, yeah. knowledge
2: about this syndrome? So the first paper, just to, to mention, was a paper that came out of the lab of Dr. Nazneen Rahman, who's in the UK, and she's a uh, a, a wonderful professor of human genetics who, who many know from her, at least in the pediatric oncology world, know her from her work in Uh, in in familial Wilms tumor and other uh, genetic dispositions to cancer. Uh, In fact, she does the GWAS work for the, um, looking at some of the the renal tumor samples connected through COG right now. And what they decided to do was they took on an ambitious project, and they looked at 823 unrelated patients as well as 781 cancer cell lines. And this paper is called Dicer-1 Syndrome, Clarifying the Diagnosis, Clinical Features, in Management Implications of a pleiotropic Tumor Predisposition Syndrome. Uh, and This was published uh, in Journal of Medical Genetics just this year, uh, 2011. And um, this was a uh, relatively, uh, presumably unselected cohort where they're looking for genetic DICER1 mutations in various groups of patients who have various different cancers. Uh, they have a total of 20 to 20-plus 20 PPBs in the U.K., uh, uh, a database, but they had tissue for 14, and uh, or presumably germline DNA for 14, and of those 14, 11 of the 14 had germline DICER1 mutations, confirming a very high rate of PPBs being accounted for by an identifiable genetic uh, predisposition. Again, this gene only really connected to PPB in 2009. So this is very current and very new. Um, interestingly, they uh, they found that two of the three cystic nephroma patients um, had uh, had germline DIS1 mutations, connecting uh, the cystic nephroma entity, which we was the the clue came from the registry, seeing familial members or PPB members themselves having cystic nephromas, but this was going straight to cystic nephroma patients, absent PPB history, and finding that two of the three of those had a DIS1 mutation. And similarly, four out of seven uh, uh children young adults with ovarian sertolyde cell tumor, which is a uh tumor of the stromal part of the of the ovary, uh developed uh this their cancers in the set it presumably linked to germline dicer one mutation uh They identified only one in two hundred and forty three wilms tumor patients linked to a dicer one mutation. They did identify only one of one intraocular epithelioma, a very rare tumor of the eye uh, in childhood, that seemed to be linked in this one case, uh, as as well as some other rare connections, such as a, a rare medulloblastoma uh, uh, and germ cell tumor. Um, and this uh, the the connection to uh, these various entities uh, is further supported by a second paper. Uh, by Schultz et al. and Allen, this is the work of, uh, under the jo- uh, John Priest uh, by John Priest, uh, Daner, and Ashley Hills group. Uh, it's entitled "Ovarian Sex Cord Stromal Tumors, Protooncogene and DICY1 Mutations." Report from the International uh, PPV Registry, and this was published in Gynecologic Oncology in 2011. And uh, among the 296 kindreds, including 325 children with PPV in their registry at that time, they had observed. Uh, three children with both PPB and sertoleolotic cell tumor. This goes to your question before, Tim. They can certainly happen in the same patient. Uh, But they also had family members of PPB patients who had, and they identified six ovarian sex stromal tumors in that group. Uh, They further looked at uh, three additional patients with ovarian sertoleolotic cell tumors in this group. And uh, what they found was uh, of the family members uh, who had Uh, Sertoli-lodic cell tumor or sex cord stromal tumors. Of those six patients, four of them actually had germline dicer one mutation, connecting them more directly to the family member who had PPB, uh, very consistent with a familial predisposition syndrome with a phenotypic heterogeneity of different manifestations, different neoplasias happening at the same time. But those family members had not gotten any kind of cancer. They had not had PPB, those six family members, but they did develop the Sertoli tumor six of them. And four of them, those those six, were identified to have a DICER1 mutation. So the, and, and this everyone knows, sertoli tumors are extremely rare. Um, to have this many, to have more than one uh, in a group of two or three hundred is statistically, um, uh, you would not, wouldn't expect it to happen. It's just a very rare cancer. Uh, they, they do report that two of, two of three of the patients who had sertoli tumors without a PPB in the family, but some suggestive, history in the family, uh, actually had DICER1 mutations. And that would support what the UK group reported of four of seven patients of Sertoli tumor having uh, a a DICER1 predisposition background. But I want to look at this a little closer just for a moment, just so that we understand where we are. We've gained a lot of knowledge, but we have to pause and think about what this all means. If you look at the three patients that the the PPP registry looked at, uh, two of them are actually uh, um, two of them were sisters, um, and that and one with a lung cyst, and I think that prompted looking for for DICER1 mutations in those those two patients, presumably. And the third patient actually had a contralateral ovarian sarcoma, so already you're kind of it's not your typical ovarian sarcomy that many of us are used to seeing on the street, so to speak. Excuse the lingo. And if if we can go back to the to the the four patients that are identified to have positive um, DICE-1 mutations in the UK group, uh, three of them had bilateral tumors. Again, the overwhelming majority of patients with sertoli cell tumor do not have bilateral disease. We know from those who, in any cancer predisposition, whether it's retinoblastoma or otherwise, multifocality or bilateral nature is more common when you have a germline predisposition. Uh, And the fourth one of the four that were positive for DICE-1 had an ovarian tumor that was difficult to classify. So I, I raise this because we've all in our minds linked Sertoli tumor to, to DICER-1, but I'm not sure that you can conclude from this these reports that if you took a group of 100 patients that were unselected with ovarian Sertoli Lotic cell tumor, what rate of positivity for DICER-1 that you would find? I suppose what I'm saying is my criticism of both reports is that Despite best intention, these are selected ovarian or cell tumor cases. And this, this is an example that's, that's very important when creating guidelines about what to do when families are facing situations of having a Dysa-1 syndrome. And the emphasis has to be that we need to validate the knowledge that we have today more. We we'll need to learn more uh, before we make broad recommendations about some of these more rare associations, about what screening needs to be done there's still a lot of knowledge to be gained, and I think that a lot of people are hard at work in doing that.
1: So if you have a patient today with one of these newly diagnosed types of cancers, would you order DICER-1 screening on them?
2: Okay, so that's a great question, and I think you'll get a different answer from a different oncologist, depending on how familiar they are with this entity to begin with, and beyond that, whether uh, how they want to approach genetic counseling, as well as the implications of the findings. I think if anybody is going to take initiative of looking into this issue further they should not do it alone they should do it in the con- in the in uh concert with a trained clinical genetics counselor uh or a geneticist so that any results or any counseling to the family can be interpreted you know with caution and appropriate advice and guidelines and the family needs to be prepared to you know the, for the routine uh, uh issues related to genetic principles of making sure that all uh, ethics etc are are followed Personally, yes, I have been recommending DICER1 mutation analysis uh, for patients with uh, with um, Sertoli tumors and cystic nephromas. I actually have a patient with an intramedullary epithelioma, although um, haven't seen them in a few years because usually you take that out and they're, they're they they go. So the the other question is, when do you call back families of the past who you've identified these 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 associated lesions in, and, and how aggressive are you about this and we have to remember that the most lethal component of this is PPB. Um, it occurs that PPB risk is generally in the first few three to extended three to five years of life, maybe a little bit more. Uh, so before people panic and start going through their databases of who has these associated lesions, um, I think people need to take a, a breath and approach this cautiously. So it begs the question about patients,
1: like you say, coming back, um, Many of them are going to now have been older, a number of years have gone by, cured perhaps. Um, is there evidence that if you get sort of past a certain age, you're home free or in the family? Are there adult tumors that have been showing up in these I, absolutely categories?
2: Absolutely not. We, I, think the, I think the book is, I, I, I wish I could reassure the, uh, your, your listeners, uh, our listeners, but you know, there are case reports of parents or grandparents who have now retrospectively been found to have a DICER-1 having three or four malignancies, whether they're melanomas and other commonly ascribed uh, adult malignancies. But when you start having three or four in one patient, you start to get a little suspicious as to what is the reach of the DICER1 phenotype. It, it may be very still have very low penetrance with time, uh, and it may be unrelated, but I just think we don't know.
1: What also brings up the issue of other kinds of cancer. So these uh, papers seem pretty exhausted. They had pretty high numbers of patients and and a limited t- tumor type, but now there's another publication, Lionel, that you looked at uh, right. that extends that a little bit. Can you tell us about that?
3: Right. So, so this paper came out online uh, in the journal called Human Mutation in August uh, on August 31st, and it's also a paper uh, that was published through the um, uh, the PPB Registry Group. Uh, the first author on this particular paper is uh, William Folks, who uh, hails from my alma mater, McGill University in Montreal. Um, and uh, this is, uh, once again, because it's a large international registry, um, the list of authors here includes uh, authors from five different countries, so I mean this uh, goes back to how how valuable having a, uh, an international registry is in terms of collecting material from a lot of different places. This particular paper extends once again, the, and the the, the the title of the paper is Extending the Phenotypes Associated with Dicer one Mutation, and that's exactly what this paper does. It um, describes um, uh, seven kindred, seven families, uh, and